I think it's the risk is much higher, obviously, for the suppliers that are all bidding together to throw out their intellectual property. That's the risk we take. And I'm like both of you, I can probably say this with confidence. We've blatantly had our design stolen and given to one of the other bidders where they weren't even trying to do a different version of it. It was like exactly our design. And that was, I think, really when we were like, hmm. Welcome to Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, brought to you by Burn Production Services. Here, we explore the different ways business events can bring value to your organization, the latest technological advances in the event space, as well as providing you with actionable strategies to make a business event a success. Let's create an exceptional event experience. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of Production Value Matters, the business events podcast. Today, I have two guests joining us, Mark Awad, who is the head of business development at BB Blank Audiovisual, and Leanne Calderwood, who is the guru of all LinkedIn and value influence, both good friends of mine that I wanted to bring on to the podcast today to talk about a subject that has been going through the events industry for the last two years in earnest, but has been a sort of backroom discussion within the business for many years. And that specifically is, should agencies and event professional organizations be paid for their creative? And this is a subject that comes up a lot about going through the proposal process, corporation or a brand reaches out to an organization, says, hey, we got this big thing we want to do next quarter. Go design it. Give us all this great ideas, and then we'll tell you whether or not we want to use you. And from meme videos of, I think, Taxi or John Street out of Toronto published a video a couple of years ago where they had one of their marketing executives sort of go to like restaurants on Queen Street and be like, I'd like to try your burger for free. And if I like it, you'll become my burger vendor of record. And like, they ambushed these business owners who were just like, God, no, like if you want a burger, pay for the burger kind of thing. And it's something that's prevailed in the industry where we sort of have allowed this to happen, have sort of gotten us started in this industry. Like when I joined the industry, it was just de rigueur. It was something that we were expected to do. But I think a lot of that conversation is changing. And I wanted to invite both Mark and Leanne to talk about it. So I'll just throw it to both of you. Leanne, you and I just did a session at PCMA Canadian Innovation Conference, where we spoke about this on a panel. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell me your thoughts about how we got into this situation and where you think it should go. Yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Leanne Calderwood. I'm a trainer and a speaker in the meetings and events industry, predominantly around LinkedIn and personal branding. But I wasn't always a trainer and speaker. I also wear another hat over at Conference Direct, which is a site selection firm. And in your introduction, you talked about it being this expectation that we don't charge for our services or that we give away things for free. And I've been in site selection for close to 17 years now. And our clients never signed agreements with us. So our service as a site selection professional is complementary to our corporate and association planner clients because we get compensated by the hotel. But what was happening, Matthew, 
And this isn't all my clients. I need to preface this by saying I have some incredibly loyal clients that would never even consider doing this to me. But some would use my services to source out a bunch of options, time-consuming, days of research, and then come to me and say, oh, yeah, we had a committee member book our hotel, so we don't need you anymore. And so that was my meeting and event industry example. I now work with a site selection firm that creates customer agreements with the clients to say, guess what? Our stuff still is complimentary service. But if you bugger off, there are repercussions and these what these repercussions are. So it sounded worded a little bit differently. So it's this expectation, Matthew, has, I think, touched every single corner of our industry whether it's you gentlemen working with the AV firms to the independent planner who's giving away creative to the site selection professional who is getting abused and then never compensated for that work. And then, of course, now that I wear my speaker hat, as you know, Matthew, speakers are asked to give their expertise away for free as well. So I see it from a few different angles and spending time with you, Matthew, I've seen it from a few more and it's disheartening followed by aggravating. Yeah, absolutely. Aggravating is a good term. Certainly, I think you and I have discussed in the past, like I will put up a post today as a poll that says, hey, should we get paid for creative proposals? And everybody in the industry will jump in and say, yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But it was a business decision that site selection, well, I think all site selection companies do, because as you said, the economics of it are that they are actually compensated by the hotel through commissions. It's a great business model. So that expectation is given there. But we don't necessarily always get the buyers sort of jumping in and saying, hey, I agree, we should pay for this, right? And so I really think that's interesting that, like, has it been written into your contracts now where, hey, here's a bunch of stuff for free, but if you don't go with us at whatever legal language that might be, it says, then our fee is this. So, Leanne, are you actually writing that into your contracts now that if, you know, here's all these free services that we'll provide to you as a courtesy to help you? However, if you choose not to go with our recommendations, here's a fee for our service. And we do. We have those customer agreements available to edit for our customers. However, I have a number of legacy clients, people I've been working with forever that I'm not going to put that customer agreement in front of them because I know that they're going to be loyal. Now, this could come back and bite me. And that's a lot about what our conversation is today is we trust people to do the right thing. But oftentimes they don't. The challenge we have here in Canada, and I can't speak for the American firms, I can only speak for the Canadian ones is not all firms are imposing these customer agreements that provide some compensation if things go awry. So if I was to put that, I suppose, what do you call it, where you have to sign this or I can't work for you, they can find another site selection firm. And that's what this conversation is about, right? If we are not giving our things away for free or complimentary, they'll find someone who can. And that's every single corner of the industry. So that's where our hope, I think, and the three of us are on board is everyone needs to be on that same train. Because if we've got different trains on different tracks, 
there's going to be a clear winner and a clear loser. And oftentimes, it's us, the ones that do want to advocate for our worth, that end up losing out on those projects. Absolutely. And so I want to segue into, Mark, your experience from the AV supplier side. I've spent some time in that world in previous iterations of my career. So I know the pain that you go through. But how is that affecting how you guys are doing work now? Like, are you still being asked by clients to give away a stage design or include that as part of your proposals? Like, what's that like for you? Yeah, so thank you. Prior to AV, I was on a supplier side with companies because I worked for a couple that built custom trade show displays and exhibits and displays for different type of events and activations, whether we'd work direct or we'd work with the marketing agencies. So it was the same back then. It was just kind of, I came into the industry, especially in regards to new business. I've always kind of been on the side of new business development. So a lot of folks I'm working with is the first time I'll work with an organization. So I'm trying to win the business. I'm participating in RFDs and bidding and things like that. And it was just second nature. It's like, okay, here's the project. Here's our solution. It includes creative, whether it's graphic design or a 3D render of a display or a main stage or whatever. So to answer your question, I think we've certainly, BD Blanc, the company I work for now, we've evolved in the sense of we understand that what audiovisual means as a whole in the industry and different organizations, different producers, planners, they all look at it differently. What we have to understand is what we can't be everything to everyone. We have an ideal client, I guess you can say, and it has to somehow fit into that box for us to move forward at this stage with giving away creative for free. It's funny, I was just having this conversation with some folks at the office today, and this is a scenario. So if you have an organization that is looking for multiple proposers, but it's a very focused search, meaning they've strategically selected three companies for various reasons, whether they've worked with them in the past, they've met them and seen their work, haven't worked with them yet, but value what they do. They, they've kind of almost vetted these three companies because they're best suited and they want to see whose solution can, that they can get the best value or is the best fit for the organization for this particular event. Maybe the overall intention is they're in pursuit of a, of a long-term partner. I'll gladly participate in those because, again, they're almost pre-qualifying themselves to me. Unfortunately, oftentimes, there are companies that are just looking, they don't really value audiovisual as you know, a dedicated partner, and it's more so a service, which is fine. We're a supplier that provides a service, but it really comes down to cost. And it's an open bid, perhaps, that anyone can bid. You know, the more the merrier. And let's rummage through seven quotes, and really, it comes down to the bottom line. I mean, more times than not, it's a, it's a no for us. And that has created way more opportunity in the end game because it just allows us to focus on what our ideal client is. And when you really put focus into something, it's kind of like the secret. You do get things back in more of abundance when you're able to narrow down your focus and really stay true to your standard. Great things will happen. But I agree with what we're both saying. And I agree that it's what Leanne just said actually really stuck with me that is we're in a very competitive industry. You don't want to do things like that to your existing clients because there is that trust and there is that relationship. But let's be honest, we know that people are after them. People are constantly saying, look at us, we're new, we can do this, we can do that. 
So you don't want to throw something, you don't want to throw them for a loop. If it's working, it's working. But, you know, it's the same thing also on the client side, if we have to play devil's advocate, it's like, look, if, if there was a monopoly in AV, there may be something that resembles that, but not quite yet. But let's say like the telecommunications companies, there's really only a couple big ones. If they all decided to change to a certain way, we'd have no options. They'd have to go on a united front and they changed it. We'd have no options. It's not like that. It's like there are so many companies and there's new companies starting up because this isn't such a universal service. Like for us, we're pretty much North America, mostly Canada. So we have our market and we're not looking to really expand out of that. So we're never going to get to that size. And there are other companies that serve a purpose that can be just a local Toronto company. Three, four big AB companies decide to start charging for creative. And this one company comes up and says, hey, we don't. Are they going to start taking business? We don't know. Yeah, you got a really good point there. And it kind of ties into what Leanne was saying just a moment ago about that risk that that organization takes of saying, hey, we're not going to go to these legacy clients because we're risking losing them by asking them to do this thing that they're not familiar with, which brings up the idea. There are two main ideas. And Leanne, you and I have talked about this extensively. I'll quote April Dunford in her sales pitch novel or book that the question you have to ask about the client is, so what? Like, no matter how cool your service is, no matter how creative, no matter what your service level is, the question that the clients will always ask is, so what? And in that, that's the question I'm always asking in this equation. As I said, I can post today, like everybody in this call and everybody listening who is an event professional is saying, yeah, we should charge for creative. I want to charge for creative. The client's gone, so what? Like, if I can get it for free, why wouldn't I? And so I want to sort of provoke that thought process with you guys. And Leanne, I'll go to you first. Why should they? Are they getting something better out of paying for that creative than they would in the current market condition, which is eventually somebody's going to give it to me for free, right? Well, and this is what I appreciate about your approach, Matthew, is I think a lot of us in this industry, when we were brought in, as with other sales and B2B industries, is we were taught how to answer objections. What is the cost objection? But I think there's this root uh, belief system that I think we need to change instead. So instead of answering objectives and always being on the defensive, we need to actually change their beliefs and move them from believing one thing about our product and service to moving them to where we want them to believe. And so when you flip the script from answering objections to now creating a new belief system, I think there's a lot more power in that. And it's a lot more compelling case for you when we're asking for that business. And that's what you do so well, Matthew, is we're not talking about answering the cost objection. We are changing beliefs. And so the I guess the example from my world is right now clients believe that there's no ROI that comes from speakers on stage. They must believe that because that's why they're not paying. So I need to change that belief. I need to get them on the train that the speaker is creating immense ROI and impacting business objectives for their audience. If I can get them to believe that then the conversation around compensation becomes a lot easier. So that's just one example from, I guess, a speaker or a trainer's point of view. 
And that's the argument I think you do really well, Matthew, is you're changing belief systems, not answering objections. Yeah, I mean, I hope we are. Mark, I'll put it in your context. So put yourself in the shoes of a brand or organization that's coming to you with blank room and they don't know what to do. The question becomes, so that I've got five AV companies in front of me and three of them are saying, here's our credentials, here's the past work we've done, here's our process, here's how we like to work and here's our cool people, whatever it is. And you've told us you have a 100K budget here's how we would do it. And you write something pretty descriptive of like a bunch of LED panels and some lights and some cool stuff, right? But two of them are sitting there going, and we rendered this amazing stage design because this is what you're going to get. One of the arguments that I always make on that is they're presenting their best first guess at what's best for you, not what you actually need. This isn't the set in stone solution. This is recommendation based on the questions we've asked, based on the detail of your RFP or conversations we've had. To answer your question, the first kind of part of it is even what you're asking, Leanne. So I'm trying to wrap my head around what's the ROI on paying for creative? I would say there's no I when you get free creative. So that's way better because you're getting a return and you're not even investing. You're investing a bit of time because it takes a lot of time to go through these RFP things. I think it's the risk is much higher, obviously, for the suppliers that are all bidding together to throw out their intellectual property. That's the risk we take. And I'm like both of you, I can probably say this with confidence. We've blatantly had our design stolen and given to one of the other bidders where they weren't even trying to do a different version of it. It was like exactly our design. And that was, I think, really when we were like, hmm. Because to your point that you were just saying is that absolutely part and parcel of what we're doing is we're painting a picture of what the experience is going to be like before the experience happens. We're trying to paint a wonderful canvas and give you an idea of what this blank space is going to actually look like. That's if the questions have been answered properly, if there's pretty kind of substantial understanding of what direction they want to go. Sometimes it's better when they don't have a direction that we want something creative. Then you can go the route of, look at our past work. Here's three or four different main stages we built that show you completely different styles and options and equipment to show you that we can come up with a brand new concept and ideate something for you that is going to meet your brand, your theme, and you know, impact for your audience. So Going back to the brand is like, if they're going to get that free, it's going to be pretty hard to convince them to pay up front. However, my thought is this. When we have a client, like Leanne was saying, legacy clients, this legacy to me means it's the strongest relationship. It's been going on. Where I come in being with a younger company is I've disrupted some of those legacy relationships in the industry because Things can get complacent and things like, I'm not saying you're doing that, of course, Leanne, but I'm saying like, we're only as good as our last event. It's not that we can never sit back and go, well, this is a client. They love us. Well, what have you done for me lately? The client can be thinking. And here we come all bright eyed, bushy tailed, like, look what we can do for you and showing them love and taking them out. Like I'm giving away my secrets here, but to integrate something new, I would say if, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But what we do, even to our existing long standing clients, 
is they have to understand, and this goes for any agency or third party or any company that was hired to provide their expertise as well as their service. It were not a waiter where it's like, I want this from the menu, go get it and bring it to me. I'm going to get exactly what I asked for. It's, I need some help because I can't design a show. I can't build a stage. I can't come up with these crazy cool designs. That's what I'm hiring you for. So there's got to be a 50-50 of having an idea of vision and letting us run with that and providing some suggestions. So if you're a longstanding client and there's that trust level there that they pretty much get us, they're going to come up with something great. But people change. Maybe a new event manager comes in and they are pretty specific on what they want and they keep coming back and forth. No, I want you to make changes. No, that's not what I'm looking for. We've already explained to them like, The first couple back and forths, absolutely complimentary because this is part and parcel of what you're paying us for to come up with a concept and then to execute it. But if you're constantly kind of clashing and like, we need another third design, fourth design, fifth design, this costs money. This isn't included in that original price that we said. And that's where we get to start building for it. That's where the creative actually becomes a service in and of its own because we're designing things constantly, going back and changing things. Or let's say that, their agenda keeps changing and sizes keep changing, rooms keep changing. So we have to change based on the changes of the show that weren't better. This is like new. So there's ways to, that we will charge for creative. I think from a business development standpoint and trying to get that first opportunity, that's where we have the biggest challenge. Yeah. So does it go back into that conversation about selling the expertise in the process? So both of you have sort of emphasized in this conversation that What we're really selling is our expertise. And certainly it's where we position ourselves as a production company with our clients is I don't know what your design is going to be until we start working together. What I'm selling is how we approach and how we think and how the process of designing and how we discover all the little bits and pieces, all of that. So I think that there has to be like a narrative shift in the market that we're too busy answering the question, what do I get for my money, right? Going back to your price objection point, Leanne, I was talking to a producer friend of mine the other day, and he regaled a story of sitting there with a CEO, getting shocked that, hey, I could renovate my cottage 15 times for the amount that this event is going to cost. And so he's not wrong. So when people are faced with enormous budgets, and because that's what the market dictates, and I think our job as event professionals is to help clients navigate that market and understand what they're spending. I just think we do the easy job, which is, oh, let me show you a picture of what I mean. And rather than let me show you exactly what I'm going to do, because I'm kind of nervous that you're not getting it. And that's on us. It's not on the clients. The clients come to the market and say, solve my problem for me. And too many of People in this industry, I think, go, well, I'll just solve it in the easiest way possible by showing you what color I've chosen, so on and so on. What I think is a disparity in that equation is that, as I said, it's your best first guess based on limited information and like a half good understanding. And as you said, Mark, you then get into the contract with them and they go, oh, well, we didn't want it to be blue. We wanted it to be red and we wanted it to look like a spaceship. Okay, well, now I have to go back and redesign and redo. And so all of that work seems like it is wasted. And so when you talk about return on investment, like they're still investing time, stress and anxiety on did we make the right choice, all of those kind of things. 
And our objective has always been to take that stress and anxiety away from the beginning of the process to say, you don't have to figure that out from a piece of paper that you've turned into a PDF that you've sent to five vendors. We'll help you through that process. And here's the proof that we know how to do it. Like, here's our credentials and here's a sneak peek at our process and how we like to work. And then we leave it up to them to make that choice. So then what I want to segue into is we've talked about, so, hey, there's five vendors out there and three of them are on board. Yeah, we're going to charge for creative and so on and so on. But there's always going to be two. And Mark, I think you alluded to it, that in this industry, there's kind of a low barrier to entry. If you have $100,000, go buy some AV equipment, you're an AV supplier next week. You know, like it's not hard, but it's not... Planners too. Absolutely. Planners. Everyone's a planner. I plan my cousin's wedding. I'm a planner now. So be wary. I can't tell you how many times I've seen in the, like, the last six months of like 16 different production companies or producers starting a little company. I, like, good for you. If, yeah. I hope you have as much hair as I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're not gray yet, you will be soon. Trust me. Yeah, don't worry about <laughs> so big question here. Do we need to add regulation into the business? We've had discussions in the past about models like chartered professional accountants and their licensing and their credentials that are required for them to start practicing, let alone be the best in the business. Leanne, what do you think? Is it time for the industry to be a little bit more regimented and licensed? Yeah, and I know we started this conversation with Laura Bickle at CIC. I think there's a lot of room to have this conversation at the certification or that regulation level. So whether you are an AV professional or an event producer or a speaker, you all have professional associations that should be able to provide education around it. I think the biggest hurdle, Matthew, is going to be who's going to step up and champion that kind of work. Because if you do it in your industry, how many producers are going to follow you? If Mark does it with the AV regulators, how many emerging AV firms are going to follow him? I can toot my process all day long. There's a lot of speakers that don't have a process who are probably going to resist being asked to always speak for a fee because they want that exposure. And I know we've had a long conversation about what exposure really is and isn't. But I think that's going to be the hardest part. And I know having these conversations is going to create an advocate here or there. But do we have enough advocates to actually start regulation? Mark, so what are your thoughts on adding that sort of licensing regulation? I'd say licensing regulation as the best term that comes to mind, but, you know, that kind of standard implementation. If I follow what you're kind of getting at in terms of, like, I guess the bidding process, I think we're going to have some challenges. I mean, one of a website that I used to use years ago, pre-AV, was Merck's. And a lot of educational institutions like universities would put bids on there. Anything government goes on there, like government loves that kind of stuff. So government will go on and they'll, they'll need to fix the work on some infrastructure downtown on three blocks and it'll be an open bid. You'll have 30 bidders on there. So now to convince them that our little industry needs to regulate that to make it more direct and streamlined and kind of fair. I don't know if they're going to be all for it. I said, so look, this might be a stretch here, but I've been thinking about it for a while. I think it's an organizational issue. I think that our clients being the event managers, I think they get this. 
I think they get this more than they get credit for. But I think that they're being mandated by a group of people who don't get events to go get something tangible and bring it to them to justify the spend. Even though it's the same spend year after year after year, and they're having successful events, and they're getting the return from these events. It's like they're trying to flex and be like, well, let's go see what else is out there. Why do you need to see what else is out there? Where did the loyalty go? Whatever happened to repeat business? Everything is based on repeat business. Everything that we use, our iPhones, we're using the same provider. Can you imagine every year going out and trying to find a new provider for phone and internet? It'd be insane. So I think like if there was, we're in the event business, you know, I wonder if there's an event out there for procurement people or for, you know, for the finance people who approve these big budgets and stuff. It's like, look, here's the thing. You hired an event manager. You should have an, don't give me, you don't understand. You have an idea of what you need to spend every year because this isn't the first time you've done this event. So stop playing dumb. You did the event last year. I don't know what my budget is. Yes, you do. You know what you spent last year. And if you want anything different or better, you have to spend more. My two-year-old can understand that type of logic. So when you have the event planners with their expertise, so I sit on these panels and I'm telling them, though, that, you know, it shouldn't I'll ditch the RFP process and go out and learn more about the suppliers that are available to you and really deep dive during your off season and, and, so that when it is time to approach one or two or three of them, if you must, because you have an opportunity and you want to actually, you're looking for that partner and it's time to find who's going to be the one that you actually choose. You have all the information you need. They're pre-qualified, but I'm telling them as if they have the option to do that, right? It's like they could have three people that they would easily work with based on past work or relationship or just quality of work they've seen or experienced. And ultimately going to be told to kind of make them bid against each other every year. And, or what are we looking for? Are we looking for savings? And then, okay, so maybe the planner has a way to say, I recommend this. Here's three designs. Here's three quotes. They're all similar and coming around. And when they're all similar, that means that it was a good RFP. When you get three quotes in and they're kind of in and around the same price, you can imagine that they all had very good information that they all just, you know, whereas when you get Kind of one's this and that because usually there's not a lot of information. They didn't give you a budget or even an idea. And then you're going to get all these wacky kind of things. Like, well, of course, I'm obviously rambling, but my whole thing is I would definitely be an advocate for trying to regulate a little bit of how these large organizations go to bid in the marketplace. Yeah. So, Leanne, you had mentioned about the associations sort of leading the charge of that. I'll ask both of you. And this is perhaps a hot button opinion, but are the associate and I can list them all like ILEA and MPI and PCMA and all of these other organizations. You know, my first question is, are they doing a good job of that? I think there's the educational piece of educating the market, let alone just those who participate in it, which I think I've been to many an MPI ILEA event and it a lot of that education is actually pointed towards me. Like how to be a better X, how to be a better Y, where there's not a lot of outward communication from those associations to the buying market to say, here's how you work with our members and pushing some of that messaging to say, you need to pay them and you need to not steal their work and all of those kind of things. And then on the other side of it, the other question that this sort of brings up is we're peripherally attached to the marketing industry there's sort of a Venn diagram of marketing, experiential, and events. 
and how that all sort of fits together. On the far end of that spectrum, in the marketing agency world and the marketing provider world, whether it's supplying digital powered assets or the agency side, like if you were to walk into Leo Burnett tomorrow and be like, I want you to pitch me creative for 15 car commercials and, you know, a campaign for the next year of Subaru's marketing strategy. But I want you to do that on your dime and then I'll choose you whether or not I like you or not. They would laugh you out of the room. They would just be like, yeah, okay, here's our retainer fee. And for the next six months, we'll work on this at a $350 an hour. We'll bill you what we use and we look forward to working with you. And so the two questions are, are associations really doing a good job of that? And let's be a little critical of that. And how can we look at something like the marketing industry and how they did it? Because there is, yes, there's the Canadian Marketing Association or the AMA in the United States that has sort of regulatory standards based on congressional or parliamentary feedback from the public because they are selling things to the public. So you can't be misleading in advertising, so on and so on. And through that infrastructure, they were able to add regulations to standards of practice to a lot of their members and saying, hey, you want to be a member of this, you want to get the information that you need and the resources you need, you have to be not a jerk about business here. And so is that a direction that we should go? Leanne, what do you think? I think the problem is going to be getting them on board that this is a conversation worth having. And we know that this conversation has kind of started because there's a handful of advocates like you, Matthew, like the team over at Ignite Magazine, which is association agnostic. They don't belong to one or the other. So there are advocates for this conversation. But I don't know if the association is ready to take that on. Is it their responsibility to educate the public? Is this maybe a conversation more geared towards regulatory bodies like meetings mean business? That is an outward customer-facing entity. They are the ones that are advocating for our industry as a whole. Maybe that's something that we should put on their plate as advocating for our worth and doing the regulation. I don't know enough about how these movements get started to kind of say this is the next logical step. And there needs to be someone that's going to step up and step out to do those logical steps. But I don't know if the associations are ready. Maybe they are. But to your point, Matthew, we haven't heard anything from them. And I would like to challenge that maybe meetings mean business, both the Canadian and the American counterpart. Maybe that's a better place to start because they're that outward facing voice, not that inward voice that our alphabet soup associations are. Absolutely. So Mark, what do you think? Do our associations doing a good job of that? Do you agree with Leanne that maybe it's not their job? It like there's an umbrella organization. And I'll throw the thought out here. Anybody wants to join in on it. Do we need a new association? Do we need something else? Well, the AB industry has a new association. I think you're a member, Matt, and we are a member. And I believe our owner is on the board of directors there as well. So we're advocating for more kind of fair market share in terms of leaning towards more so working in these hotels and convention centers that have these kind of relationships, these in personal relationship, uh, in-house relationships. But I'm not going to steer to that. I do agree with Leanne that I wouldn't know where to start because I do think it's a problem that is so high up. These folks need to be somewhere to hear it. I'm not a big fan of 
more interference in business in general. But again, it all depends on what we're looking at. So if the association world are your clients, and we all know a lot of association management companies, AMCs, or third-party planners that just happen to have association clients, and they love RFPs, but they're CSAE. And CSAE, when I was a member and when I was an active member, meaning I was attending events and things like that for Trillium Chapter or the, the annual conferences that I did notice there was a lot of folks attending that were from the association, not just event planners, from the membership side, marketing side, even finance side, all sorts of different things. So I would start there definitely by getting the word. Again, it starts with education just to get some feedback because if this is ultimately not what they want after going about it from a grassroots level, kind of talking at the events and having additional conversations, to go and kind of mandate it from another entity might not be the best way to approach. I wouldn't say that that's my best way to approach it. Do you think that it's as simple as educating sellers in the market to make very small incremental steps? Because you both sort of said, where do we start? Where does it happen? Leanne, you were very complimentary that we've certainly changed our language and how we approach and how we talk to clients. We don't offer it. Somebody says, hey, can you do me a render and a budget? I'm like, here's a budget and here's our process and we'd love to work with you and take it or leave it, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. But one of the things that we implemented was if we were going to make a choice to give something away for free in pursuit of an opportunity, and Mark, I think you spoke to this earlier, where sometimes you're going in disrupting a relationship and you've got to figure out as a sales professional, how do I get in that door and how do I demonstrate my value? What we are very bad at in this industry is, I think, showing the discount, for lack of a better phrase. So when we do that, and I'm not going to lie, we have put designs together for our clients and for potential business opportunities. But we have been very clear, like when we lay out the budget, there's a line item at the top that says initial design and development. And there is a fee associated and we scratch it out and we discount it and we say, we are giving you this in exchange for the value of this opportunity so that if they ever come back to us and say, hey, we really love this. Thanks for bidding on the AGM. We now have a launch thing happening in the fall. We really want you to work with us because we love your creativity. We love your process. We love how you work. What's the budget? I can then go back to them and say, here's that design and development fee. And this time it's not discounted because you're asking us to do it. And a hundred percent. So is that a practical change that we can enforce and encourage within the industry just day one to say, look, if you're going to make that choice, And Mark, I know you are going to be pressured at some point in the next six months to go after Bank X for their big super sales meeting. And they're going to say, hey, I want this. I want big render of what the main stage is going to look like. Is that a change that you can easily implement next week to say, hey, guys, we're adding something to our inventory system called design and development at X amount of dollars. And we can choose whether or not Like we have to show it if we're going to discount. You know, it's interesting. It's like I've been with this company for over 10 years. And I would say when I joined, they were extremely boutique, just under five years old, which 
can still be almost be considered a startup depending on your footprint in the market you're trying to kind of be in. So I've seen the evolution of a company go from virtually unknown to gaining some kind of ground in the market to kind of where we are now, which I feel is quite established. And if you were to ask me this question when I first started, I'd say there was just no chance because the risk versus reward, it's almost like we don't have the cachet to start kind of shaking things up that much. We need to build our own brand and we need to have some experience under our belts. Now we're there and I'm still kind of going, well, we still need to take that risk. We still need to prove ourselves. And it's like, I don't know if you guys ever watched Entourage. I love that show. But Johnny Drama says, and I think the final season, he goes on this monologue where he's like, I've done 300 parts in movies. I've done 400 commercials. Da, 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 da. I've proven myself time and time again. And still you hear, you make me hear that. What does he say? Like dance for my food or still has to audition. So the way I look at it is if I'm going to go like, for a small company, it's it maybe a, you know, an independent plan or something. Time is money. Time is so valuable. You have a million things you have to do. Where do you spend that time to be giving out intellectual property or time that you're not charging for that you're putting together work or a design for a creative proposal of any sense versus a company like ours is almost like we have designers on salary. It's kind of like, this is the industry we came into, is that it's a visual industry. If there's an understanding that, and I'm not even going to say the word budget, because like we that's another conversation we'll have on the next episode. But let's say they've shared the investment that they've chosen to allot to this particular project. So we kind of know what we're working with. So again, it's the cost of doing business. It's like, this is the industry we've gone into. So we have to provide this. It takes this. That's the risk you take. And if you win, there's the reward. Now, if you don't have that good feeling that this is not worth the risk, then it's up to you to say, look, you don't know what you want yet. You don't know what your investment is yet. Are you choosing us based on our, I guess I'll use that word again, cachet, our experience, our expertise? Here's examples of creative. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that the way we should go anyhow, because they should be deciding on the company first, not that one. Because again, you can put a great design, you can go and pay a designer, the best in the business, a freelance designer to put together kick-ass design and have no idea how to execute it or make it look great once you actually start working. It's like, I always say, like you can have the fanciest design. It's only as good as the content. And if the client needs help with the content, then what? So that's one of the things that we offer too, is like, we're not going to just design you these big, massive screens. We're going to design, we're going to showcase and help you utilize them well with content and branding and things like that. So why isn't that conversation enough? So to give you an example, so we're not just going to design you screens, we're going to design you the content. I kind of feel like in the proposal process, there is no way you can tell me what my content should be on those screens, right? There's a process involved in that. And I'm going to assume, like most processes, we're going to discover what you want, we're going to evaluate it, we're going to engineer something, we're going to present you three different versions, and then so on and so on. But that point should be at the contracted phase, not the sales process, right? And so, as you just said, like when BB Blank was smaller, and they were sort of disrupting the market, you have full-time designers. Like from a business point of view, I want money to come in for that designer's time. That's not a loss leader. That's not a cost of client acquisition. So 
there's the challenges that we need internally to manage. But something happened along the way, and I contend to this day that it's based on fear of losing, that we thought, well, I've got these resources, I might as well use it. But it's not a conscious effort. It's not a, hey, here's my market position. We're the company that gives creative for free. It's just everybody seems to accept it. In the, it's just a cost of doing business. And I certainly try to change that narrative. Yeah, the simple or something that we've all seen, I think, before in various kind of examples would be it's 2500 up front for the creative portion to us to actually render a concept for you. Now, if you choose to go with us, that gets rebated or that gets scratched and goes back into the production of the entire program. But if not, that's a bill. And that, I think, is a good way to start. And again, if everyone was on board, it's easier for that to process to actually take place. But that has to be a line item on your proposal, right? Like that has to be written into the language to say, hey, there's this $2,500 fee, to use your number, for us to do initial designs, which we are rebating. And you can see I scratched it out. And now the balance of that section says zero for this. But here's the language that says, if you choose not to use us or use the designs or so on and so on, like going back to what you said, Leanne, at the beginning of this conversation with a site selection, that we will turn this into an invoice and you have to sign it to agree to that. That's where the education needs to come to, because if they, let's say they choose to somewhat use elements of your design, like, I mean, we're talking about a main stage design. There are planners out there and producers like yourself and DMCs that are designing an entire experience. And we're going to take you and fly you in from here. And they're going to meet you at the airport in costume. And, and they're going to take you on a trolley to this exotic thing. And you're going to have martinis and like they're designing every step and they can go, no, thanks. We're going to go with this company. Ooh, but they, you know, page three, I like what they did there. Can you do that? And I like page seven. They might not copy the whole thing, but they might be like, I'm not going to go with this company, but there was like three or four ideas that are great. I want to use that. So it's not even like you're paying for creative. You're paying for the ideas. If you're not using us, we can't trust that you're not going to use our ideas. And it's like, that's fine. We can put it out there and artists will do that. Music. I mean, again, not to shift it too much, but I love analogies. And I am a musician and I also grew up during the Napster kind of phenomenon where I still have a big bucket of CDs in my storage room that my wife is like, they're obsolete, like get rid of them. I'm like, no, I like to collect things. I like it. I like the booklet. I like the disc. I don't know why I can't do it. They're mine. I paid for them with my hard earned money. And then Napster came in and I'm like, holy crap, you're telling me I can get this all for free. I'm also going to do that. You're darn right. I'm going to do that. But then I'm also going to go to the concert or maybe buy a T-shirt or what have you. And also, if I'm sharing, if that music's out there and I share it with my friends, they're going to listen to it. The money will come back. And that's what they found is that the whole idea of file sharing, it helped the artist. It didn't hurt the artist. The record companies were taking all their money anyways. So to get it out there at that level without having to buy it in a record, just having it instantaneously, it helped them. So that's not us. We're not that. This is we're not trying to grow because our creative is all over the place. If we want to share a show we did on LinkedIn, that's up to us. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like we're not here to just design, design, design and like it not be used because especially like we're designing something specific with perhaps their logos on it and things like that. 
I like your analogy, Mark. And, you know, it reminds me there was a commercial a couple of years ago where it's the 80s and they're working for a music company and the female junior executive is like pitching the idea of like, well, what if we sold music online and as digital downloads? And, and everybody sort of laughed, like all the dudes with the big mustaches laugh at her and they're like, you know, we're a CD company. It's like, no, we're actually a music company. And so... To me, that always... What was that from? I recall that. Yeah, like I can't remember what commercial it was. But the point is that we in the industry, I think, have always been... I'll pick on AV for a second. We're an, a, an AV supplier. It's like, no, we're not. We are a service provider. We provide events using this. And so when you get out of that mentality, then it becomes about like delivering music to the audience, not we sell projectors. You nailed it in your last post on LinkedIn there. So kudos. If anyone hasn't seen his last quick video you did there, but you did, you did the tiers of audiovisual rental or production in general. And that was, again, something personally that we decided on early on we had to establish. And we had to draw a line in the sand and say, if we're an audiovisual company, we market ourselves as audiovisual, we look, we sound, we quack like an audiovisual company, we're going to be treated like an audiovisual company. And there is a misunderstanding at times of what that means. We don't want to be bombarded with requests for AV rental because we're an event production partner. That's what we are. The audiovisual is a tool in our toolbox among other tools that we use to create the experience, but we don't want people going into our website, hitting the, hitting that contact us and saying, I need three TVs this weekend. That's just not our business model. So, and the minute we started changing our language and presenting ourselves in the market as a partner in event production, we were getting less and less of those types of inquiries. Absolutely. So Leanne, we are sort of running out of time. So I just want to come back to you and sort of say, we have sort of three different perspectives. One being very, a little bit more of the supplier side, mine's the agency production producer side, from your planning and logistics side, and then also the speaker value and the branding value. Where do you think the audience who are listening should be going to start on that journey. What are some practical tips that you think you could share with your personal journey and how you would approach it? Well, one of the focuses for me, Matthew, heading into the new year is to create a process, not an outcome. And I think that's the biggest message I've heard from you over this past year is instead of selling what it is that I'm teaching, looking at the process to get their audience to some results, to it being a return on investment. So I'm going to do the same as I'm going to focus on process versus the content. And I think all speakers, and maybe they do already, but I think the ones, the speakers that do have a process in place are setting themselves above the competition because not everyone will have a process. There's going to be a thousand LinkedIn speakers in the world. But if I'm able to outline how I'm going to move person A from point A to point Z in their LinkedIn journey, that's a bit different. So that's kind of how I'm taking my own speaking business into 2024. As for site selection, I am becoming a little bit more confident to ask for my clients to sign those speaker or those customer agreements. And so I'm positioning my message to show the value of what it is that I personally bring to the table with my years of experience and relationships, you still get for free with this agreement in place. So it does become, I think, a lot of first steps for people is to get over their own imposter syndrome 
and in comparisonitis that they're not worth asking for their worth. And that's the convert. I think that's where the it needs to start is you need to be confident that you can ask for these things, given your worth and experience in the industry. So I don't know if that helps Matthew, because I know everyone's in a different place. But I think it starts with being confident in your own skin that what you're doing is elevating the outcomes of your clients. Absolutely. And so Mark, understanding you work for a larger organization, and you may not be the one sole person who's going to make this kind of decisions, like how are you going to educate your buyers to the value of spending that value with you? That's 100%. Well, you just nailed it is that we have to educate the buyers. You also use a good analogy at PCMA about we're feeding them junk food. And of course, junk food is delicious, but we should be trying to keep them healthy. And sometimes that means we got to force them to eat a salad. <laughs> well, suggest to eat a salad, don't have to force anyone to do anything. With what we do, I think it's empowering our buyers, essentially, to kind of, you know, uh, you want your message to be so strong that people start delivering it for you. Does that make sense? That's a powerful message when you don't have to be the one only saying it. It's other people are going to go and they're going to repeat it. So if we empower our buyers to show the value of not Going and trying to collect free creative, maybe that will shift and we won't even have to start charging and it'll be a peaceful experience for all. Because if we can have them focus on doing the research first, selecting their partner before the opportunity is even meant to start being worked on, why save all this added stress right before you have to start planning for the event? You're, t- you're adding to it. Why don't you take the time when you're not planning on this event? to select based on expertise, based on testimonials, based on a tour of their facilities. Like, you know what I mean? Like we can get a good vibe for someone. And when you actually go and spend some time with them, not just the one salesperson, go spend, meet the team, take a walk around their, not just their warehouse, their offices, get a vibe for this. If this is something you're aligning your organization with and you're putting trust in them to execute something important for you, it should be more than a quote or a couple of fancy designs. It should be really deep diving into who's the right fit for us. And then you can march up to the powers that be, whomever they are, that have greenlit this event that needs to be planned. They've greenlit the number that you're allowed to go and spend. And you can say, all right, well, guess what? I proactively just picked our AV partner because they're amazing and that's for us. So once I establish my budget, I'm going to give it to them. They're going to show us some designs, but we're going with them. I'm signing with them now. We can get to that level. Yeah, I mean, it would it would be great. But then, <laughs> <laughs> I go back to the sort of value conversation, and I think it's the Affleck commercial or something like that. You know, fifteen minutes will save you fifteen hundred dollars on your insurance. I think we need to shift the mentality of the conversation with the sellers and the buyers and the entire market. That I get it, scary. If you're going out to eight different service or agency providers and saying. They all want a thousand dollars for some time to be able to design something appropriate. Geez, that's eight thousand dollars, and we're not going to. Re- and in that model that we were talking about, where you spend that thousand dollars and it gets rebated, they lose seven grand of that. <laughs> yeah, but I do like what you're saying. So we select three partners, right? We did our vetting, we did our pre-qualification, whatever it is, and we chose company A, B, and C. Well, now I'm investing three thousand dollars to save myself. along the way. And there is hard data to prove that, that when you look at 
sort of larger organizations who have long-term relationships, and I'm going to pick on some big players here for a second, but like when AWS does their cloud event, I can't remember what it's called, it's slipping my mind, but they went to CT and they said, okay, CT, well, they went to CT and PRG and I think Fourwall, three big mega companies and said, hey, we want to vet you. We want you to come in, meet with our teams, see whether or not we like working with each other, prove your credentials, all of those kind of things. And then they went and paid them. They said, okay, we want you all to work for us for a month, trying to figure out strategy, trying to figure out a buy, like an investment strategy for our AV, because we're doing massive public events that invite 40,000 people to citywides in multiple cities across the globe. So maybe they looked at BB Blank and went like, well, they only have offices in Toronto, so they can't do our thing in Vegas. Like that's a valid thing for them to eliminate you off of that list. And that's fine. But then they went to those three companies and said, we're going to pay you some money to be able to show us what you can do, build a strategic plan, build an acquisition strategy, because they didn't want to rent LED tile from CT in Chicago. They wanted to know that they had an investment over five years that would pay for all of their LED tile. And so they went to those three companies and they did that. And now AWS is creating these massive events globally. They've furthered that relationship with CT, their agency of AV company of record, all of those kind of things. And it makes predictable business and cost control and all of their leadership know that, you know what, like we know what we're doing here. So to me, it comes down to really like that idea of 1500 bucks will save you $15,000 in the long term. And if we can shift like the market mentality into that, then it becomes a non-plus decision for brand X to go out, bet six companies, shortlist three, spend $1,500 with three companies to get the best out of that process, and then know that they're confident in those decisions. They can go to management, they can go to their financial responsibilities and accountability metrics and say, we did everything we can. And rather than what I think right now is a bit of a shotgun approach, where it's like, we threw it out there. That guy had the lowest price, so they must be the best. That's right. And before I piss off any planners out there about what I've been saying this whole time, I guess it's too late for a disclaimer. But when I'm speaking like that, I'm kind of more so referring to the corporate planner because I'm sure there's going to be some agencies like, I have the final decision. My clients listen to me. Shut up. Bloody. It's like, okay, I get it. It's I'm speaking more along the big, like you said, the AWS, these big corporations where they may not have the final decision. However, if we were to go on the note you were just saying is that that is where we can start educating that in the hierarchy of the decision process, that planner, because they may not have the final decision, but they have to build a budget somehow. They have to establish their budget. And if they have these ideas that they want to do for the event, because they can showcase to their bosses the return that they're going to bring to the organization, that's why they're asking for this amount of money, whether it's more or less than previous. If they can start building a RFP cost, and if the company says, okay, well, you've talked about, it's typically about $1,000 per design. So how much do you need? How much do you need to budget for? Four or $5,000? And the planner goes, actually, I've already vetted three companies. So now we only have to do three. But that's where we can actually start at that level as opposed to the level above by saying, here's why we charge. It's like, this is the new norm. Put it into your budget. And again, for a smaller event, it may become a thing. But for the larger events, grand scheme of things, it's not going to be uh, breaking the bank. But it is something that's important to the suppliers that you're vetting. Right.
Thank you both, Leanne and Mark, for joining me on the Production Value Matters podcast. We will see you at the next time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Bye, Leanne. Bye. Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, is brought to you by Burn Production Services. To find out more about Burn Production Services and how putting on events can drive value for your business, visit burnproductionservices.com. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Production Value Matters, thank you so much for listening.